Ooh, this one's going down in history, Jigger. <laughs> well, considering that this is such an important episode, triple check for me that your mic settings are on. USB, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. All the settings are correct. Now, since 2013, I have been telling you to get in closer to the mic, Jigger. <laughs> get in closer. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, should I finally start listening to you? Well, here we are on a Sunday. We don't usually record on a Sunday. Is this what they call an emergency podcast? <laughs> it's what they call church. Oh, my goodness. I want to draw this out as long as possible, but I think we have to do this. Jigger, do you want to be the one to say why we are all gathered on the Sabbath? Well, I am uh, changing jobs. What does that mean? I have been tapped by... Uh, uh, Secretary Granholm and the Biden administration to join the Department of Energy to run the loan programs office. Before we get into our emotional reactions, because we're all a little bit sad about this, firstly, congratulations. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start with the positivity. <laughs> Exciting. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, people have asked me whether I'm excited. I, and I, I, I'm not kidding when I say I'm more terrified than excited. But, uh, but I, 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 you know, I'm thankful that I have so many friends and resources by which to, you know, lean on to, to make this transition. So the day it became clear that Biden was going to win the election, I tweeted out, I'm just so damn excited about all the great people who are going to be going into the administration. And I was in the back of my mind, I was a little worried it was going to be one of you two. And here it is. It's Jigger. And I, I can I take the tweet back now? <laughs> <laughs> I talked to an investor last week and um, he said, Jigger, do you remember what I said in the interview in 2014 when we were writing the first check to put into Generate Capital? I asked you whether there was any, you know, you going into the administration risk. And I said, there's no way there's any that someone would take me in the administration. Have you heard all the things I've said on the Energy Gang podcast? <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they better not come calling uh, to me because I have a lot of stuff that I've edited out, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be really honest. My reaction was to be really pissed off. <laughs> I, I called Jigger and I was like, what are you doing? We have such a good thing going with the energy gang and uh, like what what on earth would possess you to do that and then he helped me understand that this is a really good thing and I need to stop being selfish and uh, you know self-centered about not wanting to change anything in my life and and understand that this is really for the greater good and so really really happy for you and really happy for the Department of Energy. I, for one, am not going to stop being selfish, but I am willing to entertain the good that comes from private sector folks like Jigger going into government. Uh, I mean, 300 episodes together. We've, been do we've done 600 hours of recording time together, nearly 10 million downloads. And now it is time for Jigger to do his tour of duty in the halls of government. And Throughout this episode, we don't want to make it feel like Jigger's time on Earth is ending, although he will be in the recesses of the Department of Energy, which can be a pretty dark place. But this is an emotional change for me and Catherine. 
over the last seven years, we've created this family-like kitchen table relationship around this podcast. And you all are with us with a seat at the table. And now Jigger is about to stand up from that table for the first time. Catherine, you want to pour Jigger another glass of whiskey and convince him to stay? (laughs) I want him to wash the dishes. (laughs) (laughs) I do have to start carrying my weight around here. (laughs) Well, we are certainly not going to let you leave the table without imparting some wisdom and having a little bit more fun with us. So let's just start with the news. I mean, what are you going into government to do? What is the loan programs office functionally help us wrap our heads around what your role will be? Well, we've talked a long time about the role of the private sector and how much the private sector can do to ramp up these solutions. Um, But I think we've also acknowledged that the federal government has to have a large and important role in order to really get to what we all say we want to do, right? Which right now is to reduce carbon emissions by 15% per year, right? To reduce carbon emissions by 50% by 2030. And so the Loan Programs Office does a small piece of that, right? I mean, the federal government is large and has many programs. But the Loan Programs Office basically is this bridge to bankability. I think it's most famous for um, clearly the Tesla loan. But the other thing I think it's most famous for is providing many, many loan guarantees for wind and solar projects in 2009-2010 when Frankly, Wall Street banks did not believe that wind and solar utility-scale projects were bankable. I mean, they were so skeptical of wind and solar projects being bankable that if you remember, SunPower and First Solar, even with the loan program's office guarantees, had to sell their projects um, at a much lower price than they thought they could get to Warren Buffett in 2013 because he was the only one that was buying and he made you know 20-plus percent returns on those projects. And David Crane bought one, remember at NRG. It wasn't until probably 2014 that you started to see the that bridge to bankability actually get completed and solar and wind projects being fully embraced by um, private sector capital. And so my sense is that we need to build, you know, a hundred more of those bridges um, for technologies that many of us actually already think are mature, but, you know, aren't being treated that way. Jigger, let's go back just a second because we dove right into what the loan programs office is. And I think we maybe if we step back for listeners just to talk a little bit about the Department of Energy and the full portfolio of the department, because so much of DOE, the the programs that we look at are about research and development um, in, di- you know, in different ways, whether it's the Office of Science or ARPA-E. But maybe you could just describe where does the loan programs office sit within the whole structure of the department? Yeah, it's a great question, and one I'm still trying to figure out uh, after hours of being on the Department of Energy website. I think, um, I mean, we start from the fact that uh, the Department of Energy is, in fact, the department that takes care of all of our nuclear, you know, sort of waste and weapons programs and other sort of legacies. Um, And so that is the largest part of the budget at the Department of Energy, right? So we can start there. I think that, you know, in the part that we all think about, you've got um, many different areas, including, you know, the, the, the Office of Fossil Energy, the Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy Office, uh, ARPA-E, which we talk about, right? Uh, the Office of 
you know, uh, electrification and electricity, right? I mean, I think that you've got all of these areas and traditionally there's been a bit of a truce, I would say, between, you know, many different factions to who have agreed that the Department of Energy should be focused a lot on uh, R&D. And so I think that has been its largest and most important legacy is the national lab system which, uh, you know, receives a lot of its money from the Department of Energy and does extraordinary work. I mean, I mean, even fracking, for instance, came out of, you know, intense R&D that came out of the Department of Energy. And so, uh, you know, the Federal Energy Management Program actually helps uh, most of the government figure out how to ramp up decarbonization and the deployment of energy efficiency and, and things like that. And so, the Department of Energy has quite a diverse portfolio, and the Loan Programs Office sort of sits nestled right in the middle of all that, uh, reporting up through the you know the Deputy Secretary, you know, to figure out how to spend you know what people argue today is forty six billion dollars worth of loan guarantees to help uh, accelerate the deployment of these climate solutions. Now I understand that as you go into government you need to be as neutral as possible about what comes in front of you. But can you give us a sense of the kind of technologies or projects out there right now that are in this sweet spot that the um, office should be or could be considering? Well, there are areas that are fairly obvious um, that are not really controversial, right? So things like offshore wind um, is, you know, clearly... Uh, been awarded by many states and has not been constructed really at all except for the Block uh, Island project. And so there's a lot of support that could be provided there, right? There are um, big ambitions in the geothermal space that people have had for a very long time that have not been fully realized, right? Um, There are large ambitions in the green hydrogen space, right, that people have talked about for many years. And frankly, the Department of Energy has been a huge leader in that space since the hydrogen programs under George W. Bush. Um, You know, there are areas around electric vehicles, not just in passenger cars, which is where ATVM currently has its mandate, but also in heavy vehicles and medium uh, duty vehicles, which Uh, that advanced technology vehicle manufacturing program currently does not have the authority to participate. But, you know, you could imagine um, the U.S. Congress being amenable to those types of changes. Um, And then, frankly, in the tribal energy program, uh, there are enormous amount of resources available on um, these these lands. And um, I don't think that there has been a concerted effort to figure out how to bring prosperity um, to many of these tribes uh, via the deployment of renewable energy. And so I think that there will be a concerted effort to try to uh, figure that out. So so I think in, in all, there's a lot of areas that are, in my mind, mature from a technology standpoint, but not mature from an accessing capital standpoint. Um, and those are, I think, that's the nexus where there is a clear mandate for... Um, for, uh, you know, the office to participate. And then I think that the hope is that over time, the office uh, gets the level of support from the political establishment, um, such that it can do some of its original intent, which was this, um, you know, support for technologies that needed someone to give it a shot. Tigger, given your experience in the private sector and on the deployment side in particular, and and my experience working with a lot of startups and companies who have really been out, you know, 
who have really benefited from the Department of Energy R&D programs. How do you see the Loan Programs Office kind of bridging that between what comes out of DOE and these startups? How do you expect the private sector to be working with the Loan Programs Office? Well, I think that the Energy Act of 2020 provides some guidance there, right? I mean, part of what the Energy Act of 2020 did was um, make the loan program office more accessible to earlier stage companies, right? I mean, it used to be that you had to pay $50,000 just to start talking to the loan program's office. Um, That requirement has been softened out of the Energy Act of 2020. Um, And then there's additional fees after that to just get considered by the loan program's office. And so, you know, this is part of what we've railed against on the Energy Gang podcast over the last 300 episodes is that, you know, you really needed to, you know, hire a lobbyist for, you know, $150,000 a month to be able to get through the loan program's office. And you see that where their average loan size, I think, was something on the order of around $500 million, um, with the largest one being multi-billion and the smallest one being $43 million. And so um, you could imagine that the Loan Programs Office has really been a place only for the most mature, most sophisticated companies to participate. And, you know, while I can't ensure that that's going to get changed um, on, in the first week, I do think that there have been signals that have been sent by um, uh, Congress as well as by uh, Secretary Granholm and by the administration that they want this office to be able to be a more democratic place where everyone feels like they have a fair shot of of getting you know access to the the loan guarantees and my own ethos about this is that the loan programs office has to actually be a place where we don't say no but say here is why we currently cannot accommodate the request and here is here are the changes that would be helpful to be able to make it through the loan programs office when you're able to accomplish you know these sort of prerequisites We talked a few episodes ago about the politics of the Loan Programs Office under the Obama administration and what's changed. Of course, the Obama team was very defensive when Solyndra went bankrupt after receiving a $500 million loan guarantee. And it turned out that that was, you know, it's, it's a very small number relative to the amount of investments that were made in quite successful investments. And in fact, the portfolio of investments did make the government money, as I understand it. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, the yeah, that's right. The Loan Programs Office has done about $35 billion worth of authorizations um, over its history and has made money for taxpayers over that period of time and had about 2.7% losses in the portfolio. But, but there was this belief that we were operating under normal political rules at that time. And the Obama team, rather than going on the offensive, went on the defensive. And the question I have is, how does the loan programs office get out under the cloud of Solyndra? I think we are well beyond that. But I, I could imagine it coming back into the conversation, particularly if there are other investments that end up being failures. So I'm sure a lot of reporters are going to ask you this question when you get into uh, the office. I, how do you think about messaging this stuff going forward? Well, I mean, I certainly think that we've got a much a better track record to lean on than you know we did at the moment that Slender occurred, right? And this was two administrations ago. And so there's been a lot of lessons learned and a lot of changes that have been made to the policies and procedures of the Loan Programs Office to 
you know, avoid these kinds of, um, um, you know, things happening again. But at the same time, remember, when you look at the Tesla loan, there were many other loans made at the same time, right? I think that part of what we're going to have to come to grips with is that if you want to have the leading electric vehicle manufacturer in the world leading on technology and whatnot, you're going to have to make multiple bets. And some of those bets will result in losses, right? So we lost money on the Fisker loan, right? We lost the money on A123's you know, battery manufacturing facility. And so when you think about the different places where Loan Programs Office plays, um, there will be times where there will be um, some losses. And, and I think what the American public hopes for is that there is, you know, a, a standing up of an industry out of, you know, that portfolio of investments. And that, that I think, is, um, you know, a critical part of it. And there's probably no better spokesperson for that than Secretary Granholm. Well, I think that covers the news pretty well. I hope that's helpful for people in understanding the context of where Jigger's going and why you're not going to hear him in your ears every week. I want to spend the rest of the show reflecting on Jigger's career and the evolution of this show, and then we'll have a little bit of fun at the end. Catherine, do you want to start us off with a question? Yeah. So Jigger, I've been either watching or knowing you and interacting with you through a bunch of these times in your career, you know, watching you through BP and SunEd and and meeting you at the Carbon War Room and Generate, like what's what's evolved for you over this, you know, this the, all of these different career changes? I don't think you can really answer the question unless you're answering it in the rearview mirror. Like at the time at which you do it, like it, you don't really learn any of the lessons. I'd say that the big thing for me, and I've said it on the Energy Gang podcast before, is that is just having a level of humility about what it takes to create modern energy systems, right? When you think about what BP and Exxon and, you know, Shell and others really believe, they really believe in their heart of hearts that they are providing the molecules necessary to live a modern lifestyle, right? To move people out of caves and into, you know, modernity. And, and you know, I think they take that job really seriously. And so I think that part of this is, um, just understanding very clearly that, like, I don't think that people are, um, you know, doing bad things, whether they're, you know, uh, funding, you know, climate denial or whatever, um, out of purely bad places. Like, in general, I think that people general, genuinely are, um, you know, in awe of how much money and how much uh, effort it takes to work in, you know, some of these countries that people have to work in to, you know, move molecules, like how much effort it takes, right? And certainly people have done a lot of bad things, particularly human rights, you know, abuses and all sorts of other issues. But when we think about where the clean energy industry is now and how much responsibility we're going to have to take to like, you know, maintaining the Texas grid or maintaining the California grid or maintaining, you know, like 24 by 7 electricity or all these other things. I don't think that all of us have truly appreciated how much responsibility that is and how many sleepless nights that entails, um, you know, while folks have been railing against, you know, traditional energy providers. And, and so I think that a lot of my career has been you know, really understanding the depth of that responsibility and understanding, um, you know, 
like all of those nuances because you know I just think that short of that we're not going to really be able to make this transition. How has that influenced your leadership style across those organizations? How have you changed the most personally? Well, I've always had um, the instincts right to treat people you know with respect while still you know pushing back against what I perceive to be people being slow or people being disingenuous or whatnot. And I mean, I think that's really served me well. I mean, when you think about the way that, you know, I make money at Generate Capital. I mean, some of the people that that we're funding are folks that I interacted with when I was, you know, like a young whippersnapper at BP Solar and BP, right? And they're like, Jigger, you treated me with so much respect when you didn't have to at that point that like, you know, I trust you, right? And I, I just think that that matters so much more today than it did before. There are so many people who hate each other right now. When I was a kid, I remember taking like Dale Carnegie's courses. And one of the things you learn about that is you don't win by reciting facts to people, right? Like you don't win by like telling people they're wrong and here are the fact base by which I can prove to you they're wrong. You win by finding common ground, by like finding a common humanity, finding places of overlap that you can discuss and then, you know, moving in a collaborative fashion from there, right? And that that has just been reinforced throughout my career, right? Like whether it's the oil industry or the electric utility industry, et cetera. Like there are, there are points of leverage. And one of the things we've talked about in the podcast is you do have to build your power, right? Like you have to really build real power, right? And, and that really matters. Otherwise, when it comes time to actually like have the big fights, you don't have the power necessary to win. But you also have to like find areas of common ground and common cultural references and things like that, which I find sometimes in this era of like academic textbooks and, you know, and like electricity models and decarbonization strategies. Like, I think we just get way too in the weeds and way too much facts and not enough trying to find where people are coming from. I actually think that articulates the thesis of this show quite well and something that I learned from you and actually learned from both of you and that got better about this show over time, which was we're not just sitting here regurgitating a bunch of facts. We are trying to use plain conversational language to clearly articulate why this stuff matters for people's lives or how they build their businesses. And I feel like we've done that more and more successful over time. And I've learned a lot of that communica- communication style from you, actually, Jigger. Yeah, and I would say thank you all so much for letting me be as wonky as I can possibly be on the show. <laughs> um, I'll never forget Jigger calling me to try to get me to, to be on the energy gang when you all were finding your third host. And uh, I had two questions. One is, what is a podcast? And the second one was, what do I, what do I have to wear? And <laughs> Turns out the clothing the never mattered in, at the end. <laughs> I, know, I know. That was the, the answer to the second one was really the <laughs> pivotal for me. Um, one of the amazing things about the show, and Jigger sort of alluded to this, was you sort of meet people where they want to be. With a podcast, they can access it anytime they want. They can stop it. They can they can kind of take it in at their own speed and, you know, where they want to be. So, Jigger, when you think about um, what the podcast has done specifically, what have been some of the most important things about it? Like, what have you heard from people or what do you think you've gotten the most out of with the podcast? 
Well, I mean, one of the things that I find is is that this concept of you know economic development and you know wealth creation out of this transformation, right? We really have to rebuild our entire infrastructure is is not limited to you know Democrats. Right. Like I get so many phone calls from mayors and city council members and county executives who are like, hey, we're thinking about doing this thing. And I have learned so much about what questions to ask out of the podcast. Right. That like I'm thinking about transitioning from the oil and gas sector into the clean energy sector. And like I've learned so much from what you guys have done. And it basically put a lot more pressure on me to do a better job in this podcast because, you know, I think we've talked about this a lot in the podcast, right? That like, it isn't millions of people that are making decisions about our future, right? The people who are responsible for making infrastructure decisions um, are public service commissioners, some chairs of state senate committees, right? Um, some CEOs of companies, Um you know, some mayors and county executives, right? It's a few thousand, maybe like it's, you know, 30,000 people who on a regular basis are deciding which wastewater treatment technologies to install and which which things to install. And the fact that we have so successfully connected to all of those people, you know, regardless of their political affiliation, because they genuinely want to be in a better place to make better decisions. I just think has been quite humbling to me um, and not something I ever expected when we started this journey. What about you, Catherine? Any feedback you've gotten from listeners about how the show's impacted them? Oh, it, I agree with Jigger that uh, it's so humbling and it makes me feel like I have to work so much harder to make sure I can live up to the expectations of, you know, especially a lot of young women, um, young people generally, but young women who say that my voice has been important to them or that it's helped in their career change. That is just, that's huge. And it is enormous responsibility for for us to to try to make sure that we bring our best every single time. And I think the three of us hold each other to it. So I think that's been really, really positive and, is, and has kept, that, that's kept us going and getting better over time. One of the pieces of feedback I got early on that informed how I directed the conversations was people would often listen and say, like, I listen and I disagree with a lot of what you guys are saying, but I listen because it helps me process how I think about a particular trend or think about how I'm operating my business. And so we're not coming here to convince everybody of everything. We're here to provide a service that helps people think through some of these issues in a way that's relevant to whatever it is they're doing in the industry. And that was an eye-opening piece of feedback for me that definitely changed the direction of the show. Well, it was so funny when you talked about, you know, the tension between me and you on the What It Takes episode. And, oh. and people people <laughs> yeah, were genuinely great. concerned about your and my friendship. And they would come up to us after the live shows and go, God, I, I think you should give Steven a chance. Like, I think you guys should like bury the hatchet. And I was like, <laughs> this whole thing is an act, right? We're just trying to like highlight the differences for listeners because they've asked for that. They believe that that actually provides better information um, for them. And so, you know, some of the, some, I mean, 
some of the tension, of course, is real because we are three different people and, and we disagree. But some of that tension was certainly exaggerated. A lot of it was certainly exaggerated, especially between me and you. Which speaks to the relationship because we can just ramp it up real quick and then ramp it back down. <laughs> yeah, and the three of us are wired so differently that that's been, that's been so intellectually stimulating for me because you all come at things so differently. And sometimes, uh, you know, I have my 40 pieces of paper with highlights of like all the stuff I want to say and all the people I've interviewed and I've got it all laid out. And then Jigger will take us down a rabbit hole and I'm like oh my god I didn't even know that rabbit hole was there (laughs) I never expected that and so sometimes I would just sit and listen to Jigger and go oh my gosh (laughs) what am I gonna say now because that is super interesting and I wish I'd thought of that so Jigger I appreciate you keeping me um kind of intellectually honest and and allowing me to see things very differently it took me about six months to just drop all of my notes and say, all right, I'm riding with it because <laughs> we could go down some rabbit hole that I am not expecting. So I have to be prepared to, to jump down that hole. And now I just bullet point everything, but I used to have like rough scripts of, okay, I'm going to make these five points. And then the vast majority of them would get thrown out the window because they weren't relevant to what we were actually discussing in real time. So your takes trigger would often drive me to prepare for the show completely differently. Well, and what people need to know is like what they hear is not what happened necessarily <laughs> for the time that we talked, but that that it's all put together in a way that makes sense um, and has created a story arc that you know Stephen's been masterful at. And God, I'm going to miss the three of us, you guys. Absolutely. So I want to wrap up the show by being a little bit more playful and setting our own confirmation hearing. Because on Thursday... Your new boss, former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm, was confirmed by the Senate as Energy Secretary. After being sworn in, she tweeted, I'm obsessed with creating good-paying, clean energy jobs in all corners of America in service of addressing our climate crisis. I'm impatient for results. Now let's get to work. And presumably, that's why she's bringing in a guy like Jigger, whose impatience and obsession have put him at the forefront of financing and deploying billions of dollars worth of projects. No, Jigger doesn't need confirmation for the job, but we thought we'd create one of our own, a job interview of sorts. Are you ready for this? This is on the record, by the way. Yeah, I'm 100% not ready for this, but let's, <laughs> let's, let's do it. <laughs> okay. Catherine, how do, we, how do we set up a confirmation hearing? What is the, what is the, uh, the way to do this officially? Well, the gentle lady from Virginia has a question to ask Mr. Shaw. The gentleman yields the floor to the gentle lady. <laughs> um, yes, the gentle lady wants to ask, how gentle will Jigger actually be once he gets over there? I mean, do you do you think you'll be able to uh, speak to both sides of the aisle? My sense is that I should probably restrain myself from talking to any parts of the aisle because I think there's a legislative <laughs> office that does that. It's the Department of Energy. <laughs> right. Oh. It should be probably pretty Big focused on executing <laughs> properly in the office. Pitch, pitch barely missed his head there. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mr. Shaw, we know you've offered up your lively takes on the energy gang over the years. We just want to make sure that you'll be the right fit for this institution. Um How would you explain your qualifications for the job in 30 seconds or less? Well, actually, hold on. I think I wrote this down. Well, we wrote something down. One, I know how to convince clean energy entrepreneurs to give the government a chance to help them. So I think that's 
probably one of the most important things. I think the second is I know how to convince investors to give clean energy entrepreneurs a chance, which I think is probably the second thing. And I think the third is I know how to stay in my lane and not comment on issues unrelated to the loan programs office. (laughs) And I'm sure you will have a lane alert system at the Department of Energy. (laughs) So, Chigger, are you going to be working from your son's bedroom still? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. um, We are all going to be working from home for the foreseeable future. And so I will be um, having to carefully stage my background to, you know, to to bring an imprimatur of professionalism. So this brings me to a question that will test your critical thinking skills. If you were trapped in the room you're in right now, in your son's bedroom, what items in the room would you use to get out? Well, this room has a, uh, a roof that's, that's only two feet from the window. So I've actually thought about this. I don't know why, but I've thought about this. Like I have an escape plan. I would take my my kids' uh, sheets and I'd tie them together. And then there's a downspout here, which I think actually can handle the weight. And and it's about you know 15 feet to the ground. So that's my that's my escape route. That's classic. The the, 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 <laughs> the bed sheets tied together. I mean that is you can't get more classic than that. Yeah, right after he files through the bars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Would you consider yourself a hunter or a gatherer? I'm like, I, I would say I'm a spotter. So I'm like the one who like says, that's where the deer is. And then the hunter actually does that. And then someone else actually cleans it. I'm the, <laughs> I'm the spotter. Okay, I got one. What superpower would you choose to do your job better? I think sleep. Like, honestly, like my sense is like this job is going to be like 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And... I think the thing that I do better than 99% of other Americans is sleep like a baby. So a bunch of people in politics carry copies of the Constitution. Um, I carry that little regulatory assistance project book on transmission. What will you carry, Jigger, when you're roaming the halls of Department of Energy? I think I'll just have a card that has a serenity prayer on it. Because I think in government, more than most places, you have to figure out where you actually can make a difference and where, you know, you're just beating your head against the wall. Right. Remind me the serenity prayer again. So my parents had it like on their dresser. So like growing up, I had to read it every day. It's, you know, uh, grant me the the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. I love it. What do you want to be remembered for? Well, I don't want to be remembered at all. I mean, there's like 7 billion people on the planet. People like, Too late, you know, there are I already 300 hours of recordings of you out there. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I just want to figure out how to like get closer to the goal on climate change, right? It's just, you know, with a five-year-old kid, 2050 is right around the corner, right? He's going to be 35 years old in 2050. And I hope that there's a planet that resembles and looks like the one that I experienced um, waiting for him, right? I mean, and and so to me, I mean, I just think when you think about all the disasters that have occurred over the last few years, I mean, some of which are a result of climate change and some of which have been exacerbated by it. But, you know, you just think about, you know, what we can all do to try to you know, get a handle on this. That's, you know, that's what I want to do with my time. 
All right, final question for you. Looping back to our first part of the conversation, and I'm going to ask this while I still don't have to get the approval of a press officer at the Department of Energy. If we look back over the next four years at at DOE's work, what would the agency need to accomplish to be successful in supporting the clean energy transition? Well, you know, my own thesis, which I think is shared by Secretary Granholm, is that that we don't actually do anything, right? That the people who do the work are the people in the community on the ground every day busting their hump to make change happen, right? To get convince their mayor to replace streetlights with LED streetlights, right? The people who like convince the school district to sign an energy service company agreement, right? And and the federal government enables all of those changemakers um, and activists, right, with tools, right? Whether it's a loan programs office or whether it's, um, you know, training or whether it's uh, standards or whatever it is. I mean, it enables all these changemakers. But I think the part that we've missed for so long is that these changemakers feel unsupported, right? So I hope over the next four years, they can believe and that they are fully supported by their federal government to make change in their local community. Catherine, any final words while we still have Jigger on our last recording session? Oh, man. Um, I'm just going to miss this dynamic so much. I'm going to miss being able to spar with Jigger. And people think that Stephen and Jigger had this ongoing you know, disagreements, but Jigger and I also had disagreements. A lot, <laughs> and, a lot of them. <laughs> uh, we would we would kindly say, uh, I agree, but I disagree on a lot of stuff. But I will so miss this. It's uh, it's been such a pleasure and such a joy, and it's made me uh, better at my job and better as a person. Well, you know the feelings mutual. But one thing I hope you guys do after I leave the Energy Gang is is search out all of those bets that we made. I remember there was one bet, Stephen, that you and I made who's still ongoing, right, around autonomous vehicles and when they might actually, you know, hit the streets. Well, that was part of a much bigger bet, which is you thought that Apple would buy Tesla. And now I think that Elon Musk is worth so much money that he could just buy Apple himself, right? Well, I'm 100% sure that's not true. But, (laughs) But I do think that Apple is regretting that they didn't listen to the advice that we provided. Because I think (laughs) at the time at which we made that bet, uh, Tesla was worth about $30 billion. So I think Apple would have done really well um, to have taken that advice. And I think, frankly, all of our listeners and all of the future listeners uh, will be uh, you know, better served, I think, from listening to the podcast. Because, I, I, you know, frankly, I think that I think what you guys do better than anyone else in the ecosystem is actually demystify, you know, how these things happen, right? And and give people like the strength to realize that they themselves can make a big difference in, you know, in in this in this field of study. Well, I will just say that the love for you is real and genuine. I'm going to miss you so much and while I have a background in journalism and storytelling, um, your approach to this jigger and also yours, Catherine, the dynamic that we've created has given me the skills to create better narratives and frame issues better. And I think you've taught me a lot about how to do that. And I love you very much. And I'm really just sad to see you go, but I'm going to bottle up that sadness And I wish you nothing but the best at DOE because I know you'll do great work there. 
I've I've so loved this dynamic and so looked forward to it, you know, every week and um we'll miss this a lot. Don't be a stranger, man. <laughs> I won't be. I won't be. So Catherine, what happens next? What do you think we should do? Yeah, so it's like Jeopardy. I think we need to start with Ken Jennings. <laughs> Actually, he has his own podcast, so I don't think he's available. But we are going to rotate co-hosts over the coming weeks and months and figure out what dynamic is going to work best. So Catherine and I will still be here. You'll hear our voices weekly. You'll hear voices that you recognize, people who have been on the show with us in the past. But you're also going to hear plenty of new voices And although it's going to feel different for you, we hope you'll stay with us at the kitchen table and keep learning because the philosophy that guides this show continues and we want to provide a service to you that's going to help you learn, build your companies, make the right decisions. And of course, there's going to be a seat here for Jigger that will will keep warm. If you have suggestions for people we should try out, hit us up on Twitter. By the time this episode airs, we'll send out a goodbye tweet and you can respond to that with some suggestions on who we should cycle into the show. We'd love to hear any kind of voices because we're really going to experiment with what the new dynamic will sound like. You can also send me an email directly to postscriptaudio at gmail.com. That's P-O-S-T-S-C-R-I-P-T, postscriptaudio at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear your suggestions. Jigger, I think you should close it out. You should read the final credits. You want to give it a shot? Wow. The Energy Gang is a production of Postscript Audio. The co-hosts are Stephen Lacey, Catherine Hamilton, and me, Jigger Shaw. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Stephen Lacey is our executive producer. Remember to give us a rating and review on Apple. And give us a shout out on Twitter for ideas on where to take the show next. On behalf of all of us, thank you for listening and being a loyal part of the gang. Signing off for now, I'm Jigger Shaw. Okay, that did me in. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm tearing oh up over here. That was not fair. <laughs> damn, Jesus. It, damn you, Stephen Lacey. I almost made it the whole, oh, the whole recording. That's, that's tough. Whoa. I'll never forgive you. (laughs) I love you, man. I love you, too.